Good morning, Three Rivers Church. We are finishing up the book of Genesis today, so grab your Bible and flip over to the book of Genesis. If you're watching live stream and Genesis is new to you, it is the very first book in your Bible, and we're going to be all over Genesis today. Uh, We have come to the end of our 17-year study on the book of Genesis, and it should be fun today. We're going to be taking a look in summary... Uh, of the truths, we're going to be looking at the truths we have learned from our Genesis study. And so we're going to be starting in Genesis 1, and then we're going to kind of work somewhat sequentially toward the back, and we're not going to be able to do everything because, as I said, for a 33-year study of Genesis, we've covered a lot of truths. And so we're going to try to boil this down into just a few. And so we're not going to read entire passages for time's sake, so we're just going to state them, I'm going to give you the passage. The notes are available for you on the blog at uh, MitchJolly.com, and you'll see those posted there so you can follow through and go deeper with them, with your family and your personal study time. But in order to set that up well, I want to remind us of who we are. We say at Three Rivers Church, we exist for God's glory to disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. Radical followers of Jesus is our strategy. And we say that a radical follower of Jesus expresses three distinct relationships, up, in, and out. Up is where it all begins. Up is essential because up teaches us that we have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ and sealed in that relationship, made permanent. Proof given by the work of the Holy Spirit. It all begins with up. Jesus reconciles us to the Father, gives us the Holy Spirit, and we get to go on this eternity-long adventure of knowing God. We will be with Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit for eternity and just begin to get to know Him well. This is why we want to capture with just a few truths what we've learned about God in our Genesis study. Because knowing God and continuing to go deeper into knowing God and then refining our knowledge of God defines our in and our out. Knowing God then takes our in because if knowing God defines our in and our out... In looks a little different than maybe in looks in other places. Because knowing God takes our in from personal affinity and turns it into trinity. Personal affinity is self-centered. Because in personal affinity, my relationships with other people is based on what I like. And if you like what I like, then we can get along. That's not biblical fellowship. The knowledge of God leads to defining our in as trinity diversity and unity, not merely affinity. And then it defines our out. Knowing God takes our out from being a line item to being the reason we exist. That we are Trinitarian in our fellowship, unity and diversity, and there is an outworking in God's plan. And all of that starts by knowing God. We feed this strategy of radical life tactically by feeding it the Word of God, feeding it the manual. Because that fuels the up, it equips the in, 
and motivates apostolically in sending the in to the out. So, what are some truths we've learned from God's Word in the book of Genesis about God that's going to fuel that strategy? Well, if you will, start with me in Genesis chapter 1. And I'll state it. And again, you guys can go read the entire passage together in your small groups or in your time with your family or in your own personal study. And, and, and please, take these notes and use them throughout the week in your personal study. So here's the first truth I want to draw our attention to, and it's this. God's Word is powerful. God's Word is powerful. In fact, in Genesis 1, you're going to see in verse 3, verse 6, verse 8 and 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, that God speaks. He uses words. And in speaking and using words, He takes and creates all things from nothing. By speaking, by communicating, by using words, by using language, God brings into existence every thing that is. The Old Testament authors and the New Testament authors alike claim that God was speaking. And they wrote those words down and they captured those words for us. Such that Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 2 says this in the Christian Standard Bible. Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God speaks. God uses language. And when God speaks, He decrees. And when God decrees, He does supernatural work. This is why for us, the doctrine of God's Word is central to Christianity. If you do a systematic theology or a study in systematic theology, you'll find most of them begin with the doctrine of God's Word. Why? Because there's nothing we can know about God apart from learning it from His self-revelation in His Word. Therefore, knowledge of God from my personal experience always has to be cross-checked with what God says about Himself in His Word. The Bible claims God has spoken and therefore His Word is the baseline of determining what's true. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus says in speaking to the Father in His prayer... Sanctify them in the truth, now, not adjective. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, now, not adjective. In other words, God's word's very essence is truth. Meaning it doesn't contain true things and God's word isn't described as adjectivally as having a component of its nature being true. But its very essence, now, right? Its essence is truth. And so we learn by God speaking. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let there be waters. God said, let the earth yield plants. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights. God speaks and creation has to obey. Therefore, God's word is powerful. And we're getting to some applications in just a few moments. So hang tight there. Second observation of one of the true things, of many things we learn in Genesis about God is in verse 26 to 28 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, 
and every living thing that moves on the earth. We learn here this truth that work is good and missional and centered in God's personhood as the working creator. Work is holy and good and missional and centered in the very nature of God. So that as image bearers, we are called to work like God. In a very real sense, part of what it means to be created in the image of God is we are creators like God. Now don't misunderstand, that does not mean we create from nothing. We don't have that power. We are not God. But in working, we create We take what God has created and we bring order to it. We bring dominion over it. We bring systems to it. And we are, as image bearers of God, carrying the dignified calling of work. God tells us in this passage here that work is good. It teaches us that it's missional. Work has as its end the subduing of all created order for the glory of God. And that has... A ton of applications that really could be a whole sermon on itself. We actually have a part of our DNA, KDSC, that the very nature of work is missional in God's strategy for accomplishing His glory among the nations. So we learn here that work is good and holy and right and missional and carries with it the Godhood of God in work. Third thing I want you to note here in this passage is in Genesis 3.21 that we learn about God. And here's what Genesis 3.21 says. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We see in this passage God is gracious, he's merciful, and he's gracious and merciful to his people. And that God has woven the gospel narrative of his kingdom into history. You say, how did verse 21 teach us that? God clothed them in skins from some creature that had to die for their sin. Stop and think on that for a moment. Did some creature take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eat? No. Some innocent creature had to bear the penalty of Adam and Eve's sin. And they died in their place because of their sin. And God took their innocent covering and put it on Adam and Eve. And in so doing, we learn that God is merciful and gracious to His people. They did not get what they deserved. In fact, they got what they didn't deserve. Showing God merciful and gracious and kind. But yet at the same time, taking their sin and putting it on another, which is going to come to fruition for us in the cross, where we see the glorious doctrine, the teaching of the substitution work of God to take our sins on Himself. Psalm 86.15 says it like this, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see that God is gracious, merciful, and kind to His people. Genesis 12, we learn fourth 
that God is on mission to bless the nations through knowing Him. Flip over to Genesis 12 and we see that God continues speaking when He calls Abram to be His ambassador to the nations here. What He gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26-28. He sent them from the garden before sin on a global mission to subdue the earth and bring it under His authority and His rule as His ambassadors. So when we get to Genesis 12, it's no surprise then that God calls one from a land to go to another land where he will send him from that land as an ambassador of the knowledge of God. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What makes this passage so powerful is in the previous chapter, verse 10 and 11, we learn that there are nations spread on the earth. Chapter 11, they rebel against God one more time, just like in the garden, and God scatters them and fills the earth with them. And then he calls one to go after them and teach them the knowledge of God, showing us that God's intent is that the mission to the nations go forward so that they may know God. Which is no surprise why Jesus comes and gives us the great commission to disciple the nations. Because the God who created Adam and Eve is the God on the mountain who told the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And so God's on a mission to bless the nations through knowing Him. It does no good to make a disciple and not teach them to know God. Salvation isn't merely escaping something. It is knowing the God who has rescued you. And He invites us to know Him. We see here number 5. Genesis 15 and then Genesis 15.6. I'm going to have to read Genesis 15.6 because it's absolutely beautiful. That God alone saves. So God saves without any input on the part of His creatures. And He saves by faith. And He has always done so. God alone saves, He saves by faith, and He has always done so. In Genesis 15, we get a glimpse into how God does this by making a covenant with Abram. He's going to give him a new name, Abraham. But God's going to have him go and sacrifice for these creatures and lay them over apart from one another. And in this time and place, how two people made a covenant is there would be a death of an animal, and, them, and the two people would take the 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 cost of that sacrifice on themselves and pass between the two halves, symbolizing that both of them are responsible for keeping the covenant. In this passage, we see that Abraham makes the sacrifice and God alone passes through the middle of the sacrifices, saying to us that he alone will take on the responsibility of saving Abraham. Abraham has zero input into saving himself. God alone will save him. But we see here in verse 6 that he not just saves people, he saves them by faith. Look at verse 6. God had told him to go outside and look at the stars of heaven, and if you can number them, number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And can you imagine Abraham? God, I've got a wife that can't even have children. How, how's this possible? And look at verse 6. And he, that is Abraham, believed Yahweh. And he, Yahweh, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. <laughs> he believed him. He just took him at his word. And God said, righteous. 
And so we see here in Genesis 15 that God alone saves. And God saves by faith and He has always done so. Which is why Romans 3, 21 to 26 is the centerpiece of your Bible. Paul teaches us here that he passed over their sin. He let them go free and didn't judge them for the sin. And so that God would be just, because God doesn't let sin go. He doesn't just look through rose glasses and pretend sin's not sin. In the fullness of time, Jesus came to take on the punishment for sin. So that God is just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. God said, I will do the work. You believe and I will save you by faith. And that is the nature of God. God didn't save by law in the Old Testament. He saved by faith. And he proves it in passages like this as he weaves this gospel glory into history. Final truth I want us to observe before we get to application is this. It's Genesis 12, 4, all the way to Genesis 21. Clearly, not going to read all of that. But I want you to note this, that God keeps his word in his divine and good timing. God keeps his word in his divine and and his good timing. In Genesis 12, 4, we learn that when God called Abraham, he called him at the age of 75. And when you, and you remember, God told him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to do this through your wife, Sarah, who, by the way, can't have kids. And you flip over to Genesis 21, and we learn something important. He's now 100. So how long has it been since God made the promise and fulfilled it? 25 years. God keeps his word in his divine and good timing. This requires faith. It requires patience. It requires following God's way, not ours. It requires us trusting and understanding that trying to generate God's promises in our ways only creates conflict and difficulty and hardship. And in this case, Abraham's case, generational conflict because he took things into his own hands. So how do we apply these truths this morning? If you look on the blog, we have six applications and there could probably be 20,000, but we're going to keep it to six. Here we go. Number one, we don't let the dark kingdom and its culture determine ultimate truth. If God's word is powerful, if God's word is true and it's effective, we don't let the dark kingdom and its culture determine truth. This is one reason. Have you ever wondered why in Christian worship services, preaching carries a centerpiece? It's not just because there are people who like to stand up and talk. God has gifted people with the ability to do that, but he didn't just give them the gift just to have it. One of the reasons preaching is central in Christian worship is that preaching is the means of applying, not life application, but applying God's word to the context of God's people, getting to know God. As when God speaks, there's a supernatural component to it. He said, let there be light, and light had to appear because it didn't have an option, because his word is powerful. When God decrees that his word be spoken, it is to carry a central place in Christian worship because it's where we come together and say, let's see what God has to say. And when we do that and we do it from God's word, we exalt the narrative of God's gospel and the kingdom of God as the place of learning, the place where truth is found. 
as people of the book, or as we like to say around here, people of the manual, God's word, we have to be people who look to God's word and then speak it. One of our great needs today is that we not be pundits of a view in our world. There is a bifurcated lie that you must be liberal or conservative. Can I just bust your bubble for a moment? Jesus is far too liberal for Sean Hannity. And he's far too conservative for Joe Biden. He's far too liberal for Donald Trump. And he's far too conservative for Kamala Harris. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is the king of the universe. His word is true and right, and our responsibility is to be prophets of his word. So that we don't sit in a town hall meeting about a statue on South Broad Street and spew history or spew a political spin. But as prophets of God, we say this is Jesus' ethic, this is Jesus' truth, and this is Jesus' way, and we get on his team. So as they're going into Jericho, the Lord didn't ask Joshua, whose side are you on? That was Joshua's question to him. Whose side are you on? He said, neither one. I'm captain of the Lord's army. In other words, get on my side, hoss. Right? And so we don't let spin and pundits set what's true. We're people of the book. I want to encourage you. I've been saying this for a couple of weeks. Read the book of Amos and don't read it a chapter at a time. Amos wrote that to read all nine chapters in one sitting. Go read all nine chapters of Amos. Speak that in the public square. That, that's your assignment. That's our assignment this week. Go apply Amos to Rome, Georgia. That would be awesome. And people get saved. People throw rocks at you. And some people will go, hmm. I challenge you. Don't let spin and political punditry, if that's a word, dictate truth. Be a prophet of God's kingdom and his powerful word. Put it in the public square. I lost a lot of followers this week on the Twitter. and on. I got muted a lot this week. And that's okay. I couldn't go to the public town hall because, that, well, that would have been bad. I probably would have been stoned to death. But we have to be people who can do theological triage with God's word as our manual. If we need to know how to think on something, we need to learn how to take it to God's word and decide what is right and true. And just give you a quick little, little, little class on doing theological triage. There are three levels in doing theological triage. Level one is things we'll die for, like Jesus' divinity and his humanity manifest in the person of Jesus. We'll die on that hill. Right? That's level one. Level two are things we can agree to disagree about and still be Christian. Like believer baptism, which is accurate. And infant baptism, which is not, right? Now, there'll be brothers and sisters who'll watch this and go, Jolly, I know what you're doing. I disagree with you. And I'm like, you know what? We can disagree, but we're not going to worship together. That's level two. The level three issue is an issue of Christian conscience. Food, drink, the Rona, right? And so we let God's word speak to us truth. And we're prophets of God's word because it's powerful. It will confront us, it will encourage us, it will lift us up, it will supernaturally carry us along. Genesis 1 and 2 form the plumb line of what's right and true and basic to human order. And I encourage you to get Genesis 1 and 2 firmly entrenched in your worldview. And it will become the plumb line for what is good in our world. 
And then the rest of the scripture is going to unpack it for us. Second, application. Don't shun your vocation for holier activity. There is no more holy activity than vocationally engaging your world. Don't shun your vocation for holier activity. God has woven the necessary skill set into every created being that he creates to be effective in the world for advancing his mission to the nations. And denying that vocational skill for some manner of a more holy calling may actually rob the world of necessary skills in gospel proclamation. We say domains of society is God's strategy to complete the vision of his glory among the nations. Every disciple of Jesus, everywhere, all the time, making disciples and planting churches. Don't shun your vocation for holier activity. I want to ask Three Rivers Church to do something for me. I want you to scrub your language of the word laity. And not many people use it, but a lot of ministry professionals still use the word laity. Like, there's a distinction between the priestly guild and then the rest of us. Peter tells us we are all a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you know there are no lay people in this fellowship? That word is not found in the Bible. It's not there, so let's scrub it from our vocabulary. Every single one of us, if you're in Christ, are a priest to God through Jesus Christ. And gifted with Jesus himself by the Holy Spirit, either apostolically, prophetically, evangelistically, shepherding, or teaching. And exercise it in your job daily and make Jesus known. And you go baptize them in the Coosa River. Bring them to your small group and bring them to worship. If every disciple took that call seriously... Roman Floyd County would have no dark corners, nobody unreached, and churches full. Your vocation is holy, and God made it. He's the working God, and He made a working people. Isn't that fun? How cool is that? Third application. I want us to know and believe and practice Psalm 8615. You say, what does that say? Well, we've read it already. It says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that when we don't preach the gospel, when we don't do what we ought to do, and by the way, we all ought to be preaching the gospel. There's no excuse for not sharing the good news with our city. None. None. No excuse. No strategic excuse for us not sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. None. We have zero excuse because the gospel is powerful. If we're not doing it, that's on us. And when we don't, God's not going, boom. Slow to anger. Merciful and gracious. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, I imagine sometimes the Lord's going, Jolly, why did that make you nervous? Do you not believe my word's powerful? Just tell them. Why are you worried about what they're... Why are you... Why internally are you nervous about that, Jolly? Right? And you know what? He never hits me with it. He is a God. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Think, think through this for a second. You want proof that God's merciful and gracious? Go look at the cross. Read Romans 3, 21 to 26. That God passed over Adam and Eve's sin until he could pay for it on the cross. Wow. God passed over David's sin until he could pay for it on the cross. That's a lot of time, isn't it? A lot more time than I've had on this earth. So why should I think if God's that merciful and gracious and patient with David... Why would he be any less so with me? He's not. And he's not with you either. Isn't that good news? That's beautiful. Fourth, we need to believe that God saves by faith and he has done the saving without our work. 
He saves by faith and he does it without our work. Listen, Three Rivers Church and anybody who might be watching this and listening to this, we do not have to be responsible for saving ourselves. No good deed done earns any favor with God. My favor with God is through Jesus Christ by the cross. We don't have to earn God's favor. We simply believe. And then the book of Hebrews is loaded with beautiful gems like this. Hebrews 7.25. And I had to pick one. And I just say go read all of Hebrews. And you'll see all these beautiful gems. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That ought to sit on you like a glorious chocolate-covered donut. And if you don't like chocolate-covered donuts, repent and believe the good news. But that is a glorious reality. Because of the work of Christ, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. When you don't know what to pray or how to atone for yourself, he's got it covered. Number five, almost done. God's timing is always on point. So don't lose heart and begin a self-achievement plan. God's timing is always on point. So don't lose heart and begin a self-achievement plan. Abraham had to simply wait on the Lord to keep his word. But the situation was so grave in his mind, he and Sarah cooked up a plan for him to have Sarah's servant to try to have a child by. You guys know the story. Did that work out for their good? Negative. Did not work out for their good. His self-achievement plan created generational conflict. God's timing is always on point. He's providentially working. Most of our study for the last half of Genesis has been under the banner of God's providential weaving together of every single circumstance on this planet. So don't lose heart and begin a self-achievement plan. We have to labor. That doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. It means we do the things we know are God's will. We obey His word. We labor at our task daily, making sure to get to God's ends and God's ways without the desire to self-rescue or the effort to make it happen on our own. Because in the fullness of time, we get Genesis 21, 1-2. And it says, The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. That, that's beautiful. The Lord visited her as He said. He said he was going to do it. It's 25 years later, but he did it because his timing is always on point. So don't grow weary. Don't lose heart and begin a self-improvement plan. Psalm 24, 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Scour God's word to learn his way and get after his way. Finally, God's way is worship. God's way is worship. All through the book of Genesis, we see this theme not explicitly stated, but we see it lived out in the hearts bent either away from God and His way or toward God and His way. That the people He calls into relationship with Himself wrestle with doing things their way versus His way, and He always brings them to that place of obedience. And we'll learn later as we study through the Old Testament that that heart attitude and those actions are the essence of what worship is. Worship and song is the outward manifestation of the inward allegiance and bent of a new heart. Worship and song is the outward manifestation of the inward allegiance and bent of a new heart. If we're in Christ, we sing to Him. 
because it is the outward manifestation of the inward allegiance and bent of a new heart. If we're not in Christ, the call this morning is to believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you'll be transformed, be given a new heart, brought from death to life, taken from darkness to light, and have reason then to worship in song. And your song will count as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. So I'm going to pray and we're going to practice that. We're going to sing to the Lord from a new heart that's been changed to love Him. So let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that You would do a work of grace in our hearts. That You would fill us with Your Spirit. That You would cause Your Word to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we would hide it deep in our hearts that we would not sin against You. We ask that you would cause these truths and and hundreds of others that we have studied, but some that you've spoken to our hearts by the Spirit through the reading and study of the book of Genesis, that you would cause those things to land in us and have powerful effect in us to produce transformed living here so that we would be prophets of the Lord God ambassadors of your kingdom. Would you do that work in us? Here as we sing to you from hearts that have been transformed and be pleased, be exalted with this sacrifice of praise. We pray in Jesus' name.